All right, well, welcome back to another episode of Theology Doesn't Suck, uh, where, as always, hopefully theology doesn't suck. I haven't used that line in a while, Andy, so that's, I that's know, why yeah, I yeah, you got to bring one. it back. It's your I signature. Do. Yeah, so <laughs> with me, as always, is uh, my awesome co-host, uh, Andy, and I'm Josh, if you haven't figured that out yet. Uh, Andy, how's it going, man? It's going, uh, you know... The Avs beat the Coyotes last night, which is excellent because the I Coyotes are the, are the team right below us in the ch- in the race for that second wild card spot. So uh, that was a big win, um, and uh, I think I think we might actually make the playoffs again this year, which would be which would be huge. Yeah, that would be good, man. That'd be great for you guys. I'm uh, I'm excited. The so the Caps are making their way this way uh, soon. Actually, they're on a road trip currently. They're going to stop at yeah, they're stopping at Tampa first, but then on Monday. Uh, we're going to see them play in Fort Lauderdale, so we're excited about that. My parents got us tickets for Christmas. Dude, um, that's awesome. It's exciting. So, and they've already clinched a spot, uh, but they're fighting for, like, first yes. in the Metro, stuff like that, because the Metropolitan Division is the obviously the far superior division within the NHL, and the East oh. is clearly the better, uh, is way better than the West. I mean, statistically, go look at the numbers. It's just true. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, Josh? You're probably right. The East is a stronger conference the last few years. That wasn't true until a couple years ago. No. Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, but yeah, that is true. The, the West has fallen on hard times in the NHL. <laughs> um, yeah, they had their reign. Now they're done. Yeah. And yeah. that's fine. Anything else exciting going on with you, Josh? Not too much. I mean, I'm, I'm very excited. I, we have a, a super cool guest today um, that I personally am thrilled about. Um, so I guess we should probably go ahead Just and bring him on. What do you think? Bring him yeah. In. So with us today is Pete Enns. And so Pete, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing cool. You guys, that was like a really interesting example of tribalism. <laughs> right Old on. Testament, like you know, tribalism yeah. right there, right in front of us. So pretty cool. That I was did. your intention. I'm sure that was your intention to. to that was. Oh, I was trying to give an example. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's how we plan things out. We're, so, we're smart like that. And, and so, Pete, we do have, speaking of tribalism, we do have a question that we ask every new guest. Yeah. And you have to give an answer, even if you don't want to, okay. uh, which is, what is your favorite hockey team? This wasn't in my contract. Um, <laughs> I ha- My answer is, I love sports. I have never followed hockey. Okay. Never. Never. My default would have to be the Rangers only because of where I grew up. I mean, I played okay, hockey as go. a kid, but I never like, I never like, I don't care who wins. Um, baseball is <laughs> my fair. thing. Baseball, that's fair. Yankees, right? Yeah, that's the thing where, you know, um, that's my tribal happy place, you know, baseball. So, <laughs> and baseball, living in Philadelphia, okay. that's really easy to get tribalistic about your sport because, you hmm. know, Philly's a Philly's hard, a pretty. It's a hard Rough and city. tumble place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's not um, the most rational city I've ever lived in in my life. If <laughs> and I don't right care on. who's listening, quite frankly. That's the truth. That's is good. It, yeah. Is it a, Is it also a pretty tribalistic Old Testament style place, you would say? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Complete with well, killings. Good. Yeah, fun. <laughs> good stuff. All the good stuff. All the good stuff. Sweet. Well, uh, anyway, Pete, just uh, so we can get going here, uh, for our listeners who may have not encountered you before, could you just give us kind of like some autobiographical kind of background, like who are you, what do you do, that kind of stuff? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, um, 
I don't know. There's really nothing to know about me. I don't know really what to say there. So. <laughs> now, I teach um, in the theology department at Eastern University, which is outside of Philadelphia. And uh, I taught seminary before that for 14 years. But um, yeah, so I, I, went, I did the seminary thing, you know, PhD in biblical studies. And uh, I'm just really interested in, I've always been interested, still am interested in just how the Bible works and how you use it mm. and what does it mean. And that's just one question that Christians ask. It's not even the most important question, I think, but it's a question that keeps coming up because it can actually either fuel, I think, a healthy theology or fuel an unhealthy theology. So that's sort of my thing. And um, yeah, yeah, wife, three grown kids. We had seven animals about a year ago, but like a bunch of them died. And um, oh, bummer. (laughs) That happens. So so we're down to like three. Like it's like almost like we're empty nesters almost with animals. Uh, Wow. Well, I yeah. hear you're a cat guy, which I can appreciate because I have a I have a cat as well. Yeah, so. I have one. Is was crawling like in front of the microphone here just a second ago. <laughs> every time I sit down, she's just there, you know. So, um, yeah, and we have a cat and two dogs. We had um, we had two cats, three dogs, and a rabbit. Well, Any more like a year ago, but like like the rabbit just died. Just. <laughs> Wow. In the living room. <laughs> and uh, we Man. had to put a dog down and a couple cats down within a few months of each other. So that's always hard. I love yeah. I love animals. Yeah, it's always cats. hard. I really do love animals. So, you know, I should live on a farm. Yeah, yeah. right on. Yeah, yeah. Noelle and I have, Noelle's my wife. We we have three dogs as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she works for Peggy Adams Animal Rescue League, which is like this oh. giant, giant uh, cool. 501c3 nonprofit animal shelter here in West Palm Beach. Wow. It's pretty cool. That is well, very cool. Well, you know, you know, Josh. Um, speaking of that animal rescue league, you know what that makes me think of? Uh, the Schmalkaldic League um, in the Protestant in the Protestant Reformation, which you know was the League of, of Lutheran Princes. <laughs> okay. And the re- and and the Schmalkaldic leagues make like makes me think of Martin Luther, um, which just okay. makes me think of the Reformation in general, which makes me think of the principle of sola scriptura. Uh, which brings us to our topic today, which is Pete N's new book. What a convoluted uh, chain there! You know, I mean, seriously, it's like. Well, you know, my kind of my know, thing Andy. on the on the podcast is I have to make a ridiculous transition to our topic. And you accomplished that right here, Andy. I Thank want you. you to know that so is a beautifully ridiculous. I, I actually think that was probably my my most convoluted one. Yeah. Thus yeah. far. Um, oh, bro. All right. But that brings us to Pete N's book, How the Bible Actually Works. Um, which just came out in early March. Is that right? Um, February 19th. Oh, February 19th. That's 2019. So, so came out pretty recently. Mm -hmm. Um, so really excited to talk about it. Josh and I have both read the book and, uh, it was a really, really interesting read. And so I just was hoping maybe at first you could just give us some background on how the book kind of came about and what your goal was with the book. Sure. Yeah. I, I wrote the book over... A couple of years, but it, what really got me thinking about it is people saying to me, like other books that I've written, they tended to, and, and I think, I don't make any apology for this, but they tend to move <laughs> into, guys, we got to stop thinking wrong ways about the Bible. It just doesn't work. It just creates problems. And then I, people would say, I agree with you, but what do I do with it? And that's a question mm. that's always interests me anyway. So I thought I really I said you know I think they're right I need I I really want to think about that aspect a little bit more and that just sort of you know mushroomed into this book how the Bible 
actually works, which is a little bit of a snarky title, but um, <laughs> I'm counting on human beings have some sem having some semblance of a sense of humor in there somewhere. But um, so yeah, I, I wanted to talk about how the Bible works. It's not a rule book. It's not an owner's manual. I say that a lot on blog posts and in other books. It's not sort of just this book where you go to the index to find the right verse to answer your question. It's it's more complex than that. And I wanted to talk about that complexity and why that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Why, why that pushes us towards, I think, a deeper intimacy and understanding of God, not that God is ever understood fully, but like it just it's it's a different pathway to living the life of faith than thinking of the Bible as this rule book that lays it all out for you. Because it doesn't. Sweet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, thank you. That's that's a that's great. Um and then kind of uh like a an overarching theme um that you presented within your book is how the Bible leads us to wisdom rather than answers. And you kind of mm -hmm. touched on that, but can you just uh, like frame that out for us? What do you mean by that? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I do say when I developed that a little bit in the book that it's not like the Bible doesn't give any sorts of answers at all. <clears throat> sure. I'm just saying that the primarily it's not, it's clearly not there to do that rather to give us wisdom and wisdom is different than just, finding an answer in an index somewhere in a book. It's something you have to work for. It's something you have to think through. It's like an all-in kind of word. You have to be invested in the process, and wisdom usually comes very slowly through experience, through failures, not mm. just successes, not just through you know memorizing um, you know, a, a theology cheat sheet or something like that. It actually it comes through life usually through suffering more than anything, and th that's a good thing. And I think the Bible models that for us. It, it simply, it doesn't model a way that many people think of it, which is as this authority that will tell you on every page exactly what God is like, or on every page exactly what's required of people who are following this God, or all that. It's, I think it's more complicated. And figuring that out, like figuring out how to live, is just the perennial wisdom task of any person of faith. You always have to figure stuff out. Like, what do you do? So, <laughs> right now, yeah. right here, what do you do? And it's like, well, the Bible says, okay, the Bible says this, but what do you do? You, you're still left right. with that question. As soon as you ask that, you're in wisdom territory, not in, like, proof-texting territory. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's really helpful. And I think, too, something that um, I've been thinking about more recently is, like, we can— we can have a really solid, you know, healthy understanding of theology and we can have like our, our systematic theology worked out. We can have a, you know, solid understanding of scripture, whatever. But unless we do something with it, it's it's kind of just empty. It's almost pointless. Um, so I think the wisdom bit there really kind of helps with that. Wisdom you know, what is do we an do? action word. You're, that's a good way yeah. of putting it, Josh. It's, it's, a, it's an action word and it all has about, all has to do with and acting this thing that you say you believe. and But you see, even on that other level that you said, even on like getting your theology right, even there the Bible gives you a hard time. Yeah. Because it's really hard to systematize the Bible, you know, because it's just so diverse. It's just hard to do that. So even there, it's, it's almost like it's God's little joke for us who are trying to <laughs> systematize everything. Sure, here's a book. There's no way you're going to be able to systematize, but knock yourselves out, you know, so... Sweet. Right on. Andy, do you have anything you want to, to add or to ask with the, the idea of wisdom and answers? Um, 
I mean, we don't, we don't, we'll probably get into more discussion of this later on. I don't know, Pete, I don't know if Josh, how much background Josh gave you, but I come from like a more confessional reformed perspective. Okay. Uh, so, so, and so I, I was surprised. I did find, um, I agreed to some extent with a lot of what you said about the Bible providing us with wisdom because I do think there's not always like the Bible doesn't give super clear cut answers for everything. And I don't think the Bible is like a rule book that just tells us exactly how to live every aspect of our lives. Um, but I, I do think, and we'll probably get into this more when we're talking about like the ambiguity and diversity aspect that I do find, or I, I did disagree some with the, um, maybe level of ambiguity. That okay. You, sure. That yeah. You I understand. Seem to see yeah. In scripture. Yeah. Um, and I, I would probably see it as giving more clear cut, uh, in like ideas about God and some more clear cut commands than, than I think you kind of indicated in the book. But we we can get into sure, more discussing yeah. of why we'll that is maybe that, yeah. later on. Yeah, sweet. All right, cool. Well, um, so for those of you who have not yet uh, read Pete's book, please go do that. Um, but the the subtitle to his book says, "In which I explain how an ancient, ambiguous, and diverse book leads us to wisdom rather than to answers, and why that's great news." And so, Pete, throughout the book, you kind of break down these different ideas of the Bible as ancient, the Bible as ambiguous, and the the Bible as diverse. So, I thought it might be helpful uh, to take a look at at each one of those areas, um, and and kind of discuss that. So, sure. when you say that the Bible is ancient, uh, what do you mean by that? It's really, really old. <laughs> Perfect. Next question. <laughs> now, yeah, I don't, going out of the park. <laughs> thanks for that 80-mile-an-hour fastball right down the heart of the plate. Um, yeah, a hard yeah, one. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, everybody knows it's ancient. That's, this is not yeah, rocket science. Sure. Yeah, for sure. Like, no one needs to be convinced of that, but there are implications of that, I think. That, right. You know, the Bible is... I think I mentioned in the book something like, you know, if you think of the time of David, which is roughly 1,000 B.C., that's we're as far removed from that time backwards as we are moved from the year 5000 forward. Just to give mm-hmm. a sense of perspective, this is a long time ago, which is why the Bible says weird things, <laughs> largely sure. because of its antiquity. And, and I think we need to honor that, you know, and, and, and honor it, but engage it and maybe grapple with it. And maybe even as theologians have done, Jewish and Christian saying, I disagree with this. I don't think God is like I don't think God is a warrior, even though that's a perfectly natural way for people to think of God at an ancient time. Like, I mean, literally, not maybe not even picking up a sword literally, but like, I'm against your enemies and they're going to die. Mm-hmm. Right? So th- that's an ancient one. Or God lives in the sky. What, what, what does sky even mean nowadays? You know, when, <laughs> right, the, when there right. isn't one, really, there's no, there's no terminus. It's just there's no dome over our heads and... You just sort of keep going forever, you know, and, and so where is God? You know, that raises a certain kind of question. Um, is God looking down? You know, down is, a, is an idea that works best in, with a different kind of worldview, literally worldview, that, uh, than ancient people, that ancient people might have had, and that we don't, you know. So the antiquity of the Bible sort of drives us to have to think about, okay, what does it mean to commune with this ancient text? what theologians and biblical scholars have referred to as bridging the horizons between the then and the now. Yeah, that's what mm-hmm. theology basically does. Yes. And, but I'm not sure if that always filters down to, let's say, quote, normal people reading the Bible. They just see this stuff, <laughs> and they say, 
well, I, I hate this. I don't, want, I don't want anything to do with this. Well, it's okay to look at that critically and say, you know, does God want us to take other people's land from them and live there and maybe, maybe kill everybody or a lot of people in there? You know, does, does God micromanage the weather? Mm. You know, like he does in the Bible for, for reward or punishment. And, you know, years ago, you guys may know the 700 Club, not, not to pick on someone, yeah. but this is very <laughs> public, but Pat Robertson, you know, he, uh, this is, you know, years ago, maybe as much as 10 years ago, there was a hurricane descending onto the coast of Virginia, and he said this is God's wrath against the state of Virginia for something they did. I don't know, they voted wrong, or they had a wrong position on some issue, and and John Stewart, who used to host the Daily Show, <laughs> the Daily like, Show, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you guys know him and like him. But, um, but he said, you know, one of those nights on TV, he said, "Isn't it amazing how God's wrath always shows up during hurricane season?" And, <laughs> and that sort of sums up the problem in a sense, right? Like, um, yeah, they can ascribe this to like a direct intervention of God, and we would look at it and say, "Well, no, this is just the time of year." And plus, I don't think God's going to hold an entire state accountable. For something, it just you know, it, it's it, it just rubs us the wrong way, and I think for good reason. So, you know, it's it's an ancient book, and it and it talks like that, and and it's our responsibility to continue thinking about how to commune with the true God with a book that is a non-negotiable partner of the Christian faith, but yet mm. respecting the distance, and then what what do we do? What do right. we do with this, and how how do we handle this? And you know, that's an age old question. That's that's not a new, I'm not the first person to ask that. This is as old as the Christian Church, you know. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So so probably the idea of of reading the Bible through the lens of a, a white American male in the year 2019 is probably not going to be the most helpful uh, to fully get at what the Bible is trying to communicate. Right, or any person, in a sense, but absolutely, yeah. you know, that's, that's, you know, we're the ones who've been running the show, so to speak, for a long time, and, and it is a perspective of a particular point in time, and maybe not the perspective that's adequate to grapple with some of these texts. I mean, you talk to people of color who are biblical interpreters, and they'll sometimes take this, well, they'll regularly take the side of the ones who are the brunt of all this. Mm-hmm. Say, how do you feel about that? I say, actually, I never thought about that because I haven't had to. Right. Because I'm the dominant culture. You know? So, yeah, I mean, all these things, I think you're right, Josh, all these things sort of come together, grappling with the antiquity of it all and, and the diversity of our present moment, too, and how there are different kinds of people who look at things differently. And, and I like to think of that as a positive, not a negative, not a problem that we have to get over, but something that has to just be acknowledged and embraced. And... And I think the antiquity of the Bible really starts to push us in that direction because it's like, I mean, the early church, like origins, like, you know, yeah, I don't think God wants us to kill a thousand million people. So this is going to be <laughs> read allegorically, right? Sure. I mean, he was trying to solve a theological problem without hesitation. You can disagree with him, but the answer that he gave is not, you know, we say things like that today, like, I can't see God doing that. You're in pretty good company in the history of the church about that's a good question to ask. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. And I think, too, this I guess this doesn't perfectly fit the the idea of the Bible being ancient. But I mean, it's definitely a part of it. You use a phrase uh, pretty often that I really like um, where you talk about how how God likes to tell his story through his children. Yeah. 
Um, and so you can, well, like I said, that doesn't really get into the ancient bit, but I mean, well, I think it, it also does, does though, partially too. It, yeah. No, I think it does because they're ancient people and right. they are reflecting, you know, authentic. I mean, this is, you know, Andy, you'll appreciate it. This is not a reformed way of talking about the Bible, but I'm aware of that, or even an evangelical <laughs> way of talking about it. But I think what we see here is genuine people of faith reflecting authentic experiences of God speaking about God in the only way that they're able to, and God's okay with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe God's counting on us to, like, not just sit there, but also keep thinking. Yeah, I, that's really helpful to me. Mm-hmm. So so one of the things, I guess, too, um, that comes to play here, I think, is do you would you say you kind of have a, a hermeneutical perspective that, like, there's no way to really just communicate like objective or propositional truth over vast differences of time and culture and things like that. Would that be part of this? Um, absolute propositional truth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, my, I, I, that's, I think that's a much more tricky question than you're asking. <laughs> There's a lot. <laughs> no, it's, it's a lot behind that because, you know, I don't want to just say like, no, but mm-hmm. every example that I think of is absolutely filtered through our humanity. Mm-hmm. And maybe then that leads me to, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, this leads me to think this way without it necessarily being my final position. But um, maybe that's leading us to think that the question of finding absolute propositional truth in the Bible may not be even the focus. Like it may be mm-hmm. an interesting question. But by no means a central question, because the the communion with the Spirit of God, with the text as sort of like a means of grace to help us move in a certain direction, and that means of grace sometimes acts as a foil that we argue and debate with, because that's big in the Jewish tradition too, and by the way, in a lot of the history of Christianity, just, you know, not always, but, you know, so yeah. it's like, it's a different, I, I respect the question, but yeah. to me, it's a side issue to the larger thing about the real presence of God in and with us, which I think has to essentially transcend any kind of writing. And to make mm. sure we don't get the wrong idea, we have this Bible that can't just be cataloged by categories of propositional absolute truth. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, I mean, and maybe I'm looking at this from the wrong angle or not quite getting it but i the thing that i struggle with is i feel like a lot a lot of the base ideas that you may be working with or that i i that i see feel like i see in the book i struggle to see how you could have started with a lot of those base base ideas without extracting some kind of like absolute truth from the bible in the first place does that make sense what base ideas like give me an example that would help me well, like so, like so, even your understanding. Obviously, we would probably understand what this means very differently. But like, even understanding the Bible as as like a means of grace or as the Word of God, right, right. Um, or understanding, you know, like, um, like even some of like the basic ideas about what it means to be Christian or how God relates to people. I feel like you you have to be you're starting somewhere with some truth that you got from the bible and yeah. i don't know does that does that make no, sense I, I think i i definitely understand what you're saying i would i would respond as i'm not i'm not 
Wesleyan in my theology, but some people think that I should be. And um, <laughs> but I don't care because I'm sort of eclectic. But I, I very much appreciate. <laughs> I appreciate a lot of theological tradition, including Reformed tradition. I think they all say something that is really valuable. What I like mm. about the Wesleyans is, you know, this Wesleyan quadrilateral, like this, where, from where do we get our theological knowledge? Well, it's this, it's this subtle interaction between the tradition that we're a part of, the experiences that we've had, our reasoning ability, and also the Bible. Those things, it's not like the Bible is the basis and everything else built on top of it. Those things are like in a matrix. They're always interacting with each other. There is no Bible reading. There is no understanding of anything in the Bible apart from the tradition that you're a part of, the experiences mm -hmm. that you've had, and your reasoning ability. And I believe in reason. I think reason's a wonderful thing. It's just not infallible, right? Sure. I mean, uh, right, so, so those yeah. things come together, and I, I'm, you know, the older I get, the more I think about this and the more I've talked with other people, I think we undermine too quickly the role of experience in that. Sure, experience doesn't determine truth. Okay, truth in the way we normally think it doesn't determine it. But that's the context within which we talk about all this stuff. So when I talk about you know the Bible is a means of grace, or I believe Jesus is the Son of God, or I believe God is real, God's a creator. Do I get that from the Bible? Well, partly, but I also get it from having been in Christian communities. And having my own experiences that sort of all these things sort of come together, and I believe this stuff for a lot of reasons. It's not, it's not you know, what they call foundationalism. The Bible is the bottom, and then everything builds off of that, because the Bible is not a neutral thing that we just engage neutrally. We're, we're yeah. hopelessly lost in our cultural context. And we read it, like you were saying before, Josh, we read it within our own framework. And I read it differently than a womanist theologian. Sure. But I want to learn, you know, because what are my limitations and all that kind of stuff, right? So I yeah. think it, it frames some of those issues, Andy, in it frames them differently. It doesn't eliminate them, but it frames yeah. the discussion a little bit differently for me that for me at this point in my life make more sense, right? Cool. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah, I think I know for me personally, it was it was greatly helpful once I realized because I mean, me, me personally, my perspective uh, on scripture and, and how I read it and what it means uh, has has definitely changed. Um, and if you couldn't tell, Pete, I definitely uh, really respect your work and fall more in line uh, with people like you and, and others who think like you. No, I couldn't tell. Um, tell me more. <laughs> Say a lot about that. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Keep going. Yeah. Um, Checks in the mail. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Perfect. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Um, but once I, once I started to realize that, which might seem like a, like a super easy and obvious thing to, to understand, but once I realized that there is no such thing as just a straight, plain reading of scripture, that's not possible. I can't read anything that, I mean, I can't read your book. I can't read the Bible. I can't read, you know, the newspaper without being influenced by my experience, by my culture, by, you know, the things I was taught growing up, all those things. And so that was hugely, hugely uh, helpful for me once I, I kind of realized that. Um, yeah, so that yeah. that's big for me. I guess to, to me, though, I, I, I guess I fall in line more with, and Pete, I'm sure you're at least somewhat familiar with this way of thinking, but with kind of like a Van Tillian, like presuppositionalist way of thinking about that, mm -hmm. which is obviously we all have presuppositions but I would say I think there are right presuppositions and wrong ones, like right, you know. So, and so I mean, Josh, have you heard the concept of like the hermeneutical spiral? Uh, um, fill me in. Make me look stupid. I, mean, I, I like think, it. I think that 
there are right presuppositions and the Bible itself has presuppositions and has like a way of thinking of things or a way of viewing the world. And so as we make an effort to submit ourselves to scripture and study it, I think our presuppositions and our way of thinking of the world can change. So not like we can immediately just be neutral or escape our culture or our setting, but I think over time as we submit ourselves, um, our way of thinking and our presuppositions can be shaped and changed to be more in line with biblical thought would be my way of looking at that. But Sure, that's fair. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, having been raised as a pup with presuppositional apologetics at Westminster Seminary and having taught there, it always, I mean, I, I definitely appreciate what you're saying, Andy, but what I've found is that, and present company excluded, I don't know you at all, but, because you're talking about learning the presupposition. You're talking about, like, over time, like, coming yeah. to understand better. Um, I have never met a presuppositional apologist who doesn't think, well, my presuppositions are right. Well, how do you know? <laughs> how do you know? Because yeah. they're biblical. Okay, can we talk about what that means? No. So my job is to judge <laughs> your presuppositions as wrong, and you have to come to my presuppositions. And by the way, mm-hmm. they're white men, typically, right? So highly <laughs> educated. And again, the thing is that I, I, I get it. You know, I really, really do get it. But, you know, a presupposition, okay, God is always consistent in everything he says. Okay, that's a great, I, I actually agree with that. I'm just not sure if I find that in the Bible. Mm. I, find, I find a lot yeah. of diversity in the Bible, and I want to honor that rather than coming at the Bible and saying, well, I know the presupposition I have to come up with, and now i got to find it somehow and defend it. I'd rather just like lay that aside and realize the fallen nature of all of our minds and yeah. say, I, I, I don't know, but I want to think. And then what's happened for me theologically over the years is that that search for the right set of presuppositions doesn't end. <laughs> you know, it's, it's simply not going to happen. Like, oh, now I got it at the age of 40 yeah. or 60. If God is ultimately mystery, which I think God is, that means God is infinitely knowable. Not unknowable, but infinitely knowable. We'll never have it down. And as soon as we do, trouble can start. I mean, that's how people get burned at the stake in the medieval period, you know, and that's how people get really, can get hurt by that, you know, and, and, you know, I guess th- there's there's a humility that has to fit into that too as well. Again, Andy, mm-hmm. I'm not t- I don't know you. I'm not. This is not against you because I mean I, no, under- I, I understand what you're. I, I get what you're saying. It's an attractive proposition. Yeah. I appreciate the pushback too. I mean, I wouldn't want to just uh, steamroll over everyone. Um, <laughs> you don't seem but, like the type. The the question though is that um, the devil is in the details, or I might want to say God is in the details. The mm, question is, yeah. okay, let's look at those texts. And, yeah. and how do we understand them? And let's look at these, let's say, apparently disparate texts. And what do we gain from that? Like, is God omniscient or not in the Bible? Well, I, I can make the case that he's both, but more <laughs> often not omniscient. <laughs> yeah. Oftentimes yeah. very like finding things out. And, and do I want to, as I was told by colleagues, no, you have to keep those, like when Noah in the, in the flood story where God is figuring things out like this is horrible i gotta kill everybody you know well you can't read that you have to read that in light of clearer scripture and i'm saying that is clear i can read english and hebrew that's perfectly clear exactly (laughs) what's happening here or god is testing abraham in genesis 22 because he wants to find out whether abraham is able to uh you know really push this thing through to the end now do i think god ultimately finds things out i don't think so but i'm the god of the bible 
does. So how do we engage this text with our current theology, all that kind of stuff? And, and so I do think one, one thing I just wanted to throw out there, too, is I think um, one of the things that I've noticed is a lot of the differences I would have with what you say in the book or disagreements I'd have, I think, come down to, once again, a presupposition, like our, a fundamental view of what the Bible is or how mm-hmm. how the Bible came to be, I guess, even. How it works. Um, so yeah. I, I, I just wanted to ask <laughs> this because I, I got a sense, but I don't really know totally your position. Um like, where, whereas I see the Bible, I see, like, the traditional doctrine of inspiration, like, God created the Bible to be, like, a revelation directly from him, like, it's his word. And so, uh, you know, I believe that we need to harmonize all the parts of Scripture and that they need to be consistent. Um, whereas, would you say, like, an accurate way of, say, like, viewing or of stating your view of the Bible is that uh, it's humans recording their experience of God rather than God directly, like revealing himself in the words of scripture um i mean let for argument's sake yes i'm more in that other way of thinking but okay i've come to that position by reading the bible <laughs> right See, mm-hmm. I, I, I i you talk about the spiral which i think is a great idea the hermeneutical spiral it's like you're always looping back and reevaluating, but you're not just spinning a wheel it's like you're moving in a certain direction by spiraling like that it's like a slinky yeah. you know and I think that's a very valuable metaphor for thinking about just the nature of theology and biblical interpretation. But, I mean, the, the thing is, um, I'm really not a very abstract person. And we can talk about, you know, the, the, the trinity of terms, revelation, inspiration, and authority. How do those things work? What do they mean? Very good questions. However we define those terms, if we have to kick against the grain of the Bible again and again and again, I don't know if we're doing justice to those terms. In other words, okay, talk about the Bible as revelatory. Okay, that's fine. But let's talk about the revelatory nature of the Bible and what is being revealed by looking at these texts that don't stay together very easily. Like what God thinks of Assyrians and Jonah versus Nahum, which I talk about in the book, you know. Or mm-hmm. what does God think about retributional theology? Compare Job and the Deuteronomistic historian or the author of Deuteronomy. They, they seem to be actually in dialogue, even, this is a Jewish way of thinking, in debate with each other. You have this debate mm-hmm. going on in the Bible. Maybe that's what God is revealing. Right? Maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, so the question is not so much the category itself, it's how we fill that category with meaning. You know, if, right. does God inspire? Is it a top-down inspiration, or is it the mystery that's analogous to the incarnation, where it's like human divine working together in ways that we simply can't really even articulate because we're dealing with mm. God? You know, yeah. So it, there are ways of talking about that stuff that I think doesn't simply steamroll over significant portions of the biblical story, new and old. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. So. So from your perspective, if the, if the Bible is more humans recording their experience of God rather than like maybe the more traditional view of God inspiring the Bible and revealing himself through it, um, like how are the books of the Bible or are they any different from non-biblical like thoughts and works of humans who have an experience of God in your perspective? 
Well, I think they're different just functionally at the very least because these are books that have been embraced by the community of faith for a very, very, very long time. And in that sense, they've shaped the nature of Christianity. So I'm not saying mm -hmm. let's add a third testament and put C.S. Lewis in there, <laughs> you yeah. know, stuff like that. So, but I, th I do but think I... they're valuable. You know, I think that the, the, there, are, there are tremendous books that are valuable for helping us understand the nature of this faith that has been moving and progressing since its original impetus, which is the biblical period, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I, I, again, I think, I think that it's, you know, okay, if it's just human, then what's us to stop us from t treating anything as sort of like equally authoritative? I think that's a valid right, question. Yeah. But I also think it's just not really going to become relevant very quickly for people who are actually people of faith. See, in other words, my position is horrible for Christian apologetics. If you're trying to <laughs> yeah, convince that, somebody that else... Yeah, that is the thought I had. Yeah, yeah. but I have to tell you, I don't care. I mean, other people, can care, <laughs> I don't care about that because the Bible is not an apologetics manual. It's for mm -hmm. the people of faith. It's not written to convince atheists to become Christians. It's not written for Muslims to become Christians. It's written for the household of faith beginning mm. to end you know even when 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 you know you read in the prophets say to the nations blah 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 they don't mean actually go out there and say to them it's rhetoric for the people of god who are thinking about their own little tiny judah or the northern kingdom of israel and what role this little nation plays among the nations so it's it's a rhetorical move by the prophets meant for internal consumption Right. Mm -hmm. I think the Gospels work that way, too. They're written to communities of faith. I think Paul's letters are all about not here's how you go tell people about Jesus, but like let's work out this stuff within our community. The closest you come, I think, is parts of Acts. Mm. I think that's the closest you come. And there's, there's stuff in there, so I don't want to negate that. But to me, that's not the heart of the text. But even there, I don't think Acts is, is sort of an, an evangelistic manual. I think even there, it's saying something about the power of God and the spread of the gospel early on. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, well, should we move on to uh, maybe talking about am <laughs> ambiguous, like what it means that when you say the Bible is ambiguous? I think we've doing everything just like, already, but yes. That's true. Yeah, we kind of that's touched true. on this, but we have <laughs> yeah. kind of touched on all of that. But maybe if you want to just give kind of brief definitions of what mm -hmm. you mean in your subtitle when you say the Bible is ambiguous and diverse. Right. What I mean by ambiguous mainly is that it doesn't function as a, a propositional rule book, source book for finding out what to do. That's really, and, or yeah. even what to think about God. I think the Bible gives varied portraits of what God is like, even as I talk about in the book, even if there's one or more of them, right? There, there's diversity like that. So the diversity, the ambiguity, and the antiquity, they all hang together. They actually need each other in a sense. But um, you know, even things like, you know, something that I think is a command, a, a command that lasts. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. As I, I still get choked up even saying that because it's, it's so <laughs> meaningful to me. Okay, but what do I do? Well, love God. Okay, how do I do that? Now, in an ancient world, loving God, it was very obvious what it meant. You obeyed God. That's what love meant. There's nothing emotional about it. It's, it's a covenant faithfulness kind of word. So... Mm -hmm. And even and we know that because Assyrian treaties use that same kind of language with the vassals that they conquered. If you love me, I will love you. And love doesn't mean give me a hug when you see me. It means <laughs> love me by paying taxes and by 
by obeying me and never turning on me, and I will love you. I will, t I will keep you safe from outside invaders, right? That's, that's what mm -hmm. it means. So what does it mean for us to love God? I mean, if I could answer that question, I'd be a multi-billionaire. People would <laughs> flock to my feet, you know? I, what a, but it, it can mean different things at different times, you know? For mm -hmm. some people, like, loving the Lord your God might mean I'm committing myself to going back to church. That, that's yeah. how I'm going to express that. For other people, it's like, it may be, I, I have to detox. This is, this is so harmful to me. I need to walk away. And it doesn't tell you what to say. Or loving your neighbor. What does that mean? Well, I, I sort of know who my neighbor is. It's everybody. That's, you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But uh, so uh, that's a command. That's laying something out, you know, Andy, clear. You know, it's, it's everybody. Yeah. That's a clear thing, I think, in the Bible. Yeah. But I don't know how to love my neighbor necessarily from following a script. I have to figure it out almost on the fly. Like a friend of mine said years ago, um, the, the Christian life is winging it in the spirit. Like you have to figure things out as you're doing it. Like, do I give my uncle, this is hypothetical, do I give him $1,000 to help him get on his feet or do I not? It depends. Like I know him. What's he going to do with it? You know, like how yeah. do I love him? And how do you love yourself? Oh, for heaven's sake. We don't love ourselves very well. I, I don't think yeah. we're, we're self-absorbed. I think we loathe ourselves. I don't think we have good views of what it means to be human. How do you do that? See, I'm like, thanks for the command. And I really like, I'm going to work hard to know how do I fill in the details? Wisdom is all about the details. What do you actually yeah. do, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and I would honestly totally agree with, with a lot of that in the sense that I think like how we apply... Um, what the Bible teaches us in in our own context is certainly requires wisdom and is not just clearly laid out for us. Um, but I do think that a lot of times the Bible does help flesh itself out if you look at it as a whole. Um, like, for example, I mean, if you talk about loving God or loving neighbor, obviously there's still going to be some ambiguity and some need for wisdom. But when Jesus when Jesus says like love God, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, you know, he's he's using that as a reference to the Old Testament law. And so you can go back and look at the Ten Commandments and say, OK, so these help me flesh out what it looks like to do these things. And so I think there's some clarity there, too. Well, I mean, there may be things to help flesh out a little bit. But even there, yeah. what does it mean to keep the Sabbath? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I talk about That's something I've been thinking about, actually. Yeah, well, well, yeah, exactly. See, because it's not obvious. Keep thinking. Yeah. See, that process yeah. of thinking is a wisdom exercise because... You know, I mean, I, you'll appreciate this maybe. I don't know. But um, Andy, uh, Josh, you can listen in too if you want to. But uh, right on. Yeah. sitting in on <laughs> Presbytery meetings, long ago, like ordination kinds of uh, committees for Presbyteries, and, and we always give the question, um, do you think we should keep the Sabbath? And the answer is always yes. Well, what does that mean? Well, um, yeah, it means like not working. Okay, how about this? Can you go to an Eagles game? Philadelphia mm -hmm. can you go to an Eagles game on a Sunday and yeah. one answer was I remember this he goes well is it a one o'clock game or is it a four o'clock game <laughs> what difference does that make well if it's a one o'clock game you might have to rush out of church and that's not good but four o'clock's okay see that's I mean I think utterly that's nonsense personally but the, the thing <laughs> is that he's thinking see he's got a like it's not obvious what it means which is the point of the question yeah. like what does it mean to yeah. quote what is work don't work on the Sabbath. What does work constitute? I mean, 
Yeah. That's those these are tricky questions. So you've got this, you know, keep the Sabbath. And of course you have New Testament passages. I think they're a little bit not super clear on like making that like a thing. I found it to be very healthy spiritually, but I, I think the even the discussion there even is whether this is something that okay, is every day Sabbath day because Jesus is raised. That's the theological argument. You know, has, has even yeah. the nature of time changed? Has yeah. Jesus morphed this Old Testament law to the extent that it it supersedes it? You know what I mean? So not supersessionism, yeah. but it, like it supersedes those commands. And to me, that's that's a really good theological debate to have, frankly. You know, and I I'm like I'm wide open and talking about stuff like that. But that's the point. Yeah. <laughs> We're wide open talking about it. Yeah, I think the I mean just this idea of thinking, um, and Josh, this is something. <laughs> What's up? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, I was just I was saying that um, something that just kind of hit me, and I guess um, I've thought about this before, but I think that the idea of of wrestling with the text and the like the diversity, the amb- uh, ambiguity, and and the wisdom, but I think it's so beautiful to me because uh, one of my biggest fears and I and a critique that I would make is that if we uh, sometimes the Bible becomes an idol. And if the Bible gives us all the answers about God, then why we don't need God. We don't need relationship with God because we have all the answers. And so I think that if if the Bible, d- does that make sense? Am I making sense? I think the Bible often becomes an idol. We idolize this thing. We try to make it fit um, this I- you know, the ideas, the thoughts that how we try to make it behave the way we want it to. Um, and well, then when know, it Josh, doesn't, we don't I know what to do. <laughs> no, I mean the thing is, I agree. We we all have that tendency. Yeah. Um, I would I would push it back a little further. I don't think it's the Bible that's the idol. I think okay. it's our own thinking about God that becomes the idol. Certainty. So we have these little idols, and the Bible falls into service in those things, right? So it's, it's For sure. I think it's a little bit different than that. It's, I mean, the Bible can become an idol. Well, you know, it's it's like the Bible is an idol. How do you know? Well, you just keep proof texting it, and like you know, uh, having this simplistic view and the, the way you think about the Bible is all important. Behind that is a deeper theology about what God is like, and mm, the Bible yeah. has to fit into that somehow, right? So um, that's why, you know, it's like you can't just start with the Bible. It's already the Bible within a whole matrix of other sorts of issues, which are emotional, mm. intellectual, <laughs> social. Let's not forget the social angle, you know, because, I mean, I, I've been in communities where I'm, I haven't been reflective in, in retrospect, I haven't been reflective about what I think because of the social context of that. But when you leave that, you start saying, man, I, I thought I actually thought that I can't believe I thought See, it's I mean, all these things. We're just human. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're psycho, social, spiritual, physical beings, and we're just doing the best we can. And I think God honors that. At least yeah. I'm betting on that. <laughs> if I'm not, I'm sure, sure. <laughs> no, yeah. <So. laughs> um, I have a question that will slightly change our focus, okay. if that's okay. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about like the application of um, the principles or ideas that you lay down in the book. Okay. Um, so, so like for someone like me, with with my view of the Bible, one of the questions that immediately pops to mind, which I'm sure you've gotten a thousand times, um is when you're looking at the Bible and dialoguing with the Bible, obviously you've like 
pointed out that certain ideas or principles or commands from the Bible are still very valuable and important to you. Um, so how do you decide which commands or ideas or values are still valid or correct and which ones are not? Like, how, how do you do that without it just being arbitrary? Um, okay, here's the thing. Theology is arbitrary. Theology is <laughs> oh, subjective. Snap. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, um, it is. I mean, but the thing is that what if that's part of the human predicament or the human state, and God is understanding of that, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I, I I agree. Like, I mean, here's the thing. I'm not crazy, but there are crazy <laughs> people out there who yeah. like will yeah. use the Bible to do anything. Okay, so for that and that kind of a situation, like, okay, maybe some TV preachers who are like just they're, they're whacked out people. Well, Pete, how can on what basis can you say they're whacked out because you don't have the subjective view of the Bible because they're hurting other human beings mm. because they're liars and because Jesus doesn't want you to do that. How do I know that? Partly from reading the Bible, partly from my experience, partly from my community, partly from wisdom that I've gained over time, and from other people who've been down this road. So there are all sorts of ways of, I think, critiquing horrendous theologies that are really meant to... I, I, they're not, they may not be meant to do this, but they have the effect of marginalizing people. And you see these big themes of scripture, like okay, you don't really do that. You don't. Want, sometimes that happens in the Bible, but by, by and large, you don't want to do that, right? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so it's it's. I think the answer to the problems that subjectivity raise in theology, I think the answer to that is not throw out subjectivity and find some sort of notion of pure objectivity that we can possibly attain in a few years of study. That if, if it were that easy, there wouldn't be seminaries. There mm. wouldn't be Bible colleges. There wouldn't be yeshivas. We wouldn't still be arguing about this stuff for literally over two millennia. There's something <laughs> going on here that resists that. And I think the answer to it is a lived surrender to God and, and working out what that means. Mm. Yeah, right on for sure. I think that's great. Uh, do you have any any other thoughts on that, Andy? Follow no, I mean, I guess I'm I'm probably stuck in my uh, modern <laughs> enlightenment way of thinking. Uh, yeah, but but to At least me, you can no recognize meaning. it. <laughs> to, to me, uh, there's no. I I just have a hard time seeing any. Even if my ability to understand it is imperfect and uh, somewhat infused with subjectivity, I don't see a way of having any meaningful idea of truth or moral value without some kind of objective standard. Mm -hmm. um, and, and for me, I'm sure you're familiar with this perspective because I'm sure you've interacted with it. But for me, I, that in, in the Christian life, that standard is scripture. And when you start looking at scripture in a very subjective way, you, it seems to me that you lose the ability to meaningfully talk about morality or truth or value because even if it see, even if like based on your experience, a certain set of values seems good at the time. Like a hundred years later, someone could be like, "Well, you know that I just think that seems dumb now." And so and maybe it, God's okay with that because <laughs> we're human. See what I mean? It's like, but that yeah. doesn't mean anything goes. But see the the problem that I see, Andy, with the Bible as let's say setting the moral standard is that you know yeah. there are some pretty 
There are things that happen in the Bible that are illegal now and should be. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's why it's like, I mean, that's why I want to understand, I have to understand, let's say, certain moral things that happen in the Bible within that context and try to grapple with it and say, okay, it's not that the Bible is wrong, it's that it's ancient. <laughs> and, and I want to sort of respect that. And yeah. Because, you know, w- once... Once you go to any part of, if you have a view of the Bible that is, this has to be an objective standard of truth, even if we can't attain it, even if we have to keep working at what that objectivity is, because you're not saying it just falls in your lap. You got you to think about right, it. Work yeah. for it right? But Absolutely. as soon as you take any part of the Bible and say, well, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> like, I'm not going to stone my rebellious teenage son. Yeah. Right. And virgin daughters are not my property. Th- those are moral um, givens in the ancient world. And I just don't know if that doesn't sound very Jesus-y to me. Mm. It's subjective. I, yeah, you don't write it subjective. But. Yeah, I would say, I mean, I think there's, when we look at the Bible, um, at, when we look at what the Bible's explicitly teaching versus what it's assuming for this, like assuming is going on in the culture, I think there mm-hmm. is a difference there. Um, but I also think, like, with certain things like commands to stone rebellious children or thing like that, uh, I, I, the way that I would look at the Bible as, as like, a redemptive document with progressive, le- progressive revelation, um, I, I think that that was moral for the time. And if God did still want to institute that today, it would be moral. Uh, <laughs> But we don't John do it now because at you. I, that was amazing. Because folks. of the way that God's covenant works. <laughs> that was Andy's buddy. <laughs> it um, was yeah. me. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know. I guess the thing is, maybe I'm just like really desensitized. But I don't. A lot of the stuff in the Old Testament, I don't have a problem with. Uh, because they're not morally directives. I, right. As I would be uncomfortable with it personally, I know because of my like personal cultural setting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't have problem with God instituting it as part of his like covenant plan, which, you know, and which he then he used that, for example, the Mosaic law for a time uh, and then fulfilled it in Jesus. Um, Although, you know, Andy, the Mosaic law. OK, I yeah. mean, how do you treat slaves? Don't read Exodus 21 because you're going to freak <laughs> out because it's I like they're read, treated as property. I read those. <laughs> I I read the uh, I actually one of the passages in your book that gave me the most trouble, like I had to do some research to find a satisfactory answer was your comparison. Of, I think it was Exodus twenty one and Deuteronomy fifteen and Leviticus 5, too. There are three different ways of looking at the release of Hebrew slaves and yeah, I I looked at that. I did I did find an answer that was satisfactory. Did you get a to sleepless me, night or two at least out of that? Or? I did, yeah. Okay, you did, Thank you did goodness, give me good. a little challenge. It was yeah. good. <laughs> uh, yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Well the thing is, you know, and, and the um you got a satisfactory answer, which is fine. I mean I I mean yeah. that my job is not to make sure you don't have a satisfactory answer, but the thing is you saw let's say the problem or the challenge and now okay and you can say progressive revelation which is i i mean i'm not against the idea but at that see when you say that at that point yeah you've left the data of scripture and you've imposed upon it a theological structure subjectively and that doesn't make you wrong (laughs) yeah see i would argue i guess that that idea though comes from like how the new testament talks about christ fulfilling 
So oh, you want to talk about that? I'd be love to talk with you about the bizarre way in which the New Testament writers yes. rip the Old Testament out of context in a way that it's almost unrecognizable to subjectively talk about this Jesus who is the center of their experience. I'm just teasing yeah, you, yeah. Andy. I know. Yeah. I just, I'm, by the way, th welcome to one of my classes. I do this all the time, and my students either love me or hate me, and I have no idea which it is. But anyway, so. yeah. I just—I no, mean, I I love talking great. about this stuff and the going yeah, back and fun. forth, the debate. You know, I think is very, very important. And and uh, and that's the thing is, you know, if we're not afraid of, and you're not, if we're not afraid of the debating of it all, yeah. I think that's where a lot of like the good energy can come from that if we're not trying to kill each other as a result yeah. of that, right? And that's the thing. Yeah. That, that's where it's like. I, that's where I draw the line. Call it a subjective line, if you will, but it's a line that I draw because I think it's wrong to do that. I think it's wrong to impose ideas on people and cripple them if they think differently. I think to go sure. back and to debate, that's. I mean, that's where Christians have a lot to learn from Judaism, and I say this a mm. lot because th that's part of their tradition more than at least modern evangelicalism. It's more like you have these wars and you settle things instead of keeping the conversation going. Yeah. So, and you guys are well, yeah, keeping the conversation going, which is great. Yeah, that's kind of the goal of the podcast here is for us to be able to have those discussions between people who disagree. Right. Um, so, I don't know, I guess we're even getting close to our wrong. time limit here. Yeah, even, even though, though you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> we're getting close to our time limit. So, Josh or Pete, are, is there, are there any final things you guys wanted to throw out there or... Anything, um, Josh? I'm good. Yeah. I, well, I have one question that I've always kind of wanted to ask you, Pete, because I have a way that I would answer it, but I, I'm interested how you, what you would say. Um, if people accuse you of having a low view of Scripture, what do you, what do you say to that? I say, shut up, jerk face. I think you're ugly. <laughs> right on. That's perfect. No, that's a good I, answer. I, I say, I mean, okay, it depends on who it is. Okay. I mean, it depends if I know them or not, or if they're just trying to pick a fight and stuff like that. But I'd say right. I, I don't think I have a low view of Scripture. I think I have a view of Scripture that's struggling to account for the data that I see there. Okay. Right? And, and I think that is a high view. I don't think that's a... I think a low view is ignoring the inconvenient stuff that won't fit into a theological system. I think that's a low... I think it's disrespectful of Scripture. You have to grapple with it somehow. And now, you may come up with answers. Right. That's yeah. satisfying. OK, that's that's a different level of disagreement or discussion at that point. But but th I don't think that's a low view of Scripture to look at it and say, I, I, I have some work here to do. do you, and yeah, I don't think awesome. it fits together that nicely, as, as so and so might say, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think I think that's a really great way of putting it. And that's definitely been something that's helpful to me, just coming coming to the Bible and kind of allowing it to be itself and behave the way that it does without trying to in, infringe on that and, and more so just try to understand that and what we what we might be able to learn from that. To me, at least seems like a higher respect of the Bible and trying to impose, um, you know, a set system of belief on it that, that the Bible itself might not even uh, hold for itself, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Sweet. Awesome. Well, uh, we are pretty much out of time, but uh, Pete, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us. We really appreciate it. Sure, guys. It. This was fun. Yeah, this conversation fun. has been awesome. Thank you yeah. uh, so much for your time. Yeah, and so check out Pete's uh, newest book, uh, How the Bible Actually Works. Uh, it's available on all the major online retailers and et cetera. 
Um, and Pete, do you have a website you want to plug or anything like that? Yeah, as I mean, well? PeteEnds.com, which is also the Bible for normalpeople.com. It takes you to the same okay. place, but PeteEnds.com is, is easier to type in. So. Awesome yeah. podcast. You have a podcast, right? Yeah, yeah. How, we the have Bible also a podcast. Uh, Jared Bias and I, we, we co host it called The Bible for Normal People. And uh, yeah, that's a lot of fun too. So check that out. Awesome. This, we, we're, it's just it's fun to do that podcast. I didn't think it would be, but it is. <laughs> right so, old. so check yeah. so check that out as well um if, if you're a newer listener to us you can find us on social media look us up theology doesn't suck we have a website theology doesn't suck.com you can contact us ask us questions tell us to shut up uh etc and um other than that thank you for listening and we hope you'll join us again next week yeah go caps, go caps.